Hey there, world. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna, and I'm happy to have you tuning in. So I know we recently started a series of episodes on retirement planning, in which each week we're going over a particular topic or insight on retirement as we know it today. But this week, we're going to take a quick break as we feature our monthly guest, who is none other than Dr. Donald Vandegrift. Dr. Vandegrift is a professor of economics at the College of New Jersey. Uh, Full disclosure, that is my alma mater. And he's received his bachelor's in economics from the College of William and Mary and a PhD also in economics from the University of Connecticut. His primary areas of research are urban issues and experimental and behavioral economics, especially focusing on crime and policing. So definitely some timely expertise for what's going on in our country today. His research has appeared in many renowned journals, including the Landscape and Urban Planning Journal, the Journal of Quantitative Criminology, the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, the Journal of Neuroscience, Psychology, and Economics, and many, many more. Much of his research has been funded from grants through the National Science Foundation, the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, and the Institute for Humane Studies. So aside from being an all-around great guy, Dr. Vandergrift has quite a bit of experience on topics that right now happen to be front-page news in America. So as you join us over the next hour or so, our conversation begins with what's happened since the murder of George Floyd, what's going on with policing today, particularly with Black Lives Matter and the defund the police movement. Then we transition into another area of his expertise, which happens to be sanctuary cities and what's going on with sanctuary cities. Uh, So I know that these are certainly touchy topics. They're emotionally charged. They've become great fodder for political debate. But I encourage you to listen to us throughout the next hour or so as we really look at things from the eyes of an economist and we tease out a lot of the different uh, statistics and you know some of the viewpoints that do affect these matters and what some of the consequences might be intended or otherwise. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, Dr. Donald Vandegrift. Don, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for inviting me, Brian. Yep. Yeah, it's always great to kind of go back to my roots and speak with some folks from TCNJ. Glad to be uh, on the show. Yeah, we're glad to have you here. So just to to clue in some of our listeners, I know you have a very diverse background here, of course, with a a specialty in economics, but how did you, how did you kind of get that interest in economics? Where did that all come from? Well, as a high school student, uh, I just loved reading the newspaper and uh, newspaper uh, uh, articles on uh, just about every public policy topic have, have an economic uh, question at their core. And uh, that's what spurred my interest in, in uh, uh, studying economics and uh, then, of course, uh, working in the field following uh, my graduation. That's interesting. Yeah, I tell a lot of uh, my friends oftentimes when we speak about economics is that it, it kind of affects every decision you could think of, whether it's international trade or should we order a pizza pie tonight or go out for steaks? You know, they're all economic decisions in some way, shape, or form. Right. And, so, and as a financial planner, I'm sure you're well aware of that. 
<laughs> without a doubt. And so did you dive right into, you know, being a professor or was there a career prior to teaching? I had a brief career uh, and, and it wasn't my, uh, my plan as an undergraduate to, to uh, end up as an educator. Uh, following graduation, I went to work for the federal government uh, in a, a division of uh, the, uh, uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that evaluated uh, electric utility rate filings for compliance with federal regulations. And uh, at, at that time, uh, deregulation of electricity was uh, coming down the pike. And, and uh, I uh, figured that that would be a very exciting area to get into. But in order to get into the, uh, uh, the division that wrote the rules, as opposed to uh, uh, check for compliance with the rules, you had to have a master's degree. So my plan was just to go back to school and get a master's degree and return to either that position or a similar one involved in uh, uh, writing uh, uh, federal rules uh, in regulated markets. Uh, but uh, uh, once I uh, got in front of a classroom, I decided that uh, maybe, maybe that was for me. And uh, I've been doing that now for mm, more than 25 years. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty cool journey. And so when you got into teaching, was there a particular niche that you had pursued or it was more like a general economics? Well, as uh, any graduate student in, in your typical program will tell you that uh, when they send you off to teach the first time, they start you with a principal's class. And uh, following that, uh, you sometimes uh, graduate to uh, uh, running an upper level class uh, at the time uh, you get close to completing your dissertation. So that was my path, uh, typical of most graduate students. Uh, I maintain my interest in the microeconomic area uh, just because of the background in regulation, uh, but it shifted slightly towards economics of law and then into uh, uh, behavioral economics and land use over time. Interesting. And, and before we get into your real areas of expertise, I just wanted to touch base on how you think, you know, colleges are doing right now with, you know, especially with the pandemic going on, everything going remote. Um, are you, do you have any idea if, if enrollment perhaps could be going down or if schools are going to be, you know, more of like kind of like a Phoenix school that's being taught online or what's going on with colleges today? Oh, uh, that, that's, a, that's a big question. Uh, I haven't researched it in depth, so most of what I say is uh, based on reading uh, uh, newspaper articles. I think that uh, the, uh, the smaller schools that are focused on liberal arts will prob probably be hurt most by these uh, developments, especially the schools that have uh, uh, relatively modest or no endowments. Uh, the, uh, the larger schools, uh, whether we're talking about Rutgers or Penn State, uh, will weather the storm, I suspect. And, and uh, even if their students aren't altogether happy with uh, the way that uh, online instruction uh, goes for the next few semesters. Okay. Envision that uh, even some of the larger schools are going to suffer because uh, of budgetary implications that follow from uh, their residence halls. 
and uh, the residence halls, uh, at least as near as I can tell, at many of the schools will not be anywhere near capacity. They'll probably have them at 30 to 50 percent of uh, what they normally hold. And uh, uh, you still have to heat the building and maintain the building. And uh, as a result, uh, they're going to take a hit that way. We'll probably learn a little bit about ways that we can use uh, online instruction in ways that are complementary to the classroom experience. I know I've discovered a few things about videos that I may not have uh, discovered otherwise. But uh, at a place like TCNJ, the product we're selling, I believe, is uh, for the most part uh, that uh, that one-on-one -on -one contact with faculty. That is, the faculty should be accessible and generally the expectation of students at a school like TCNJ is that uh, they'll be able to easily access faculty, walk into their office, and, and have a uh, somewhat lengthy conversation about uh, class material or uh, uh, current events. That's the point I was going to make, is it seems like so much of your college experience is based on those social interactions with your professors, your classmates, and everything going on on campus. Right, that's, that's what you're paying all that uh, money for. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> exactly. you might just take online courses at Arizona State. Yeah, right. It's very true. They've and been so, working on that product for some time, and, and they're uh, pretty good at delivering it. Yeah, yeah, there's all different ways to definitely take on some education, including podcasts, you know, just like these today. Let's hope and, so. <laughs> you and me both. So what have you been up to lately as far as some of your research? I know we spoke a little bit about your expertise in, in policing and uh, experimental and behavioral economics. But just for the, the layman, can you explain a little bit of what exactly that is and what your goals are with that research? Well, you know, uh, in, in recent years, a lot of my research has been driven by conversations with students. And uh, uh, this, uh, this crime paper, really the first of my career, uh, uh, followed from a discussion I had with a, a student who's the co-author on the paper, Brian Connor. He's now a graduate student at University of Pennsylvania. Okay. But uh, he was scheduled to complete his senior thesis with me a couple of years ago and uh, walked into my office and said, uh, I'd like to study Black Lives Matter. <laughs> I really don't know anything at all about Black Lives Matter. Uh, this was a couple of years ago. Uh, and why don't you see if you can find some data? This is my typical response. Okay. Uh, because uh, in order to what, analyze something in any sort of detailed way, we need to get to at least some reliable uh, data. So he went off. And he found this fantastic data set on the internet uh, that's described in the article uh, uh, called Killed by Police. And uh, what they'd done uh, by uh, aggregating information across a series of websites and checking through journalistic sources is uh, listed every incident uh, in the country from 2013 onward, where the police killed somebody. Okay. And 
And I thought, well, maybe there's something we can do with this. Uh, uh, at the time, there was already a relatively large literature extending back a couple of decades into the causes of uh, uh, police use of force, that, and in particular with an in, uh, uh, intent to determine whether it was driven by racial animus. That is, was there discrimination that, uh, that fueled this uh, use of force by police against a citizen? So I, I figured, uh, well, that area was pretty well plowed over. Uh, let's think about the consequences of this use of force. And uh, uh, then I started to think about, well, how do we measure the outcomes that follow from the use of force? And uh, I decided the best way to go was to look at murders, because if we look at other measures of crime as disorder rises, uh, then it may be that uh, people don't report that uh, somebody broke into their garage and stole their bicycle. Mm -hmm. During a riot, the, the police uh, are unlikely to be concerned about crimes like that. Uh, whereas murders, uh, there's a body that has to be accounted for typically, and uh, the general consensus is that uh, uh, there isn't uh, any mismeasurement or there's relatively little mismeasurement of murders. So that's how that project evolved. Uh, I tell a similar story for uh, another project that's nearing completion about sanctuary cities. Okay. And uh, uh, I could go on, and, uh, but it's a, a relatively similar story about a, a student raising an issue and then uh, uh, going off in search of data and uh, some surprises that uh, cropped up in the process of. Uh, trying to get a handle on uh, what was driving sanctuary city policies. Okay. Yeah, well, I, I definitely want to get into some of that. And it sounds like your students are not shying away from uh, touchy subjects right now. <laughs> These are Not at all. In fact, uh, and, and that makes me more likely to do it, I guess, because uh, if I get in trouble, I can just say that, hey, it was their <laughs> idea. Yeah, you didn't come up with it. <laughs> and so... And, and Go ahead. I was just going to say the the I guess the first one that we could start with the paper that was you know got quite a bit of attention. You said that the main data that you had been looking at was murders, and and now are we speaking about murders among citizens, murders by police officers, or both? Like what? Just to frame the conversation there, what was some of that murders research? Murders among citizens, where the police are not murdering a person, right? Uh, because we want to use the police murders to explain subsequent changes in disorder, right? And that, that disorder measurement is the level of murders among citizens. Okay. And okay, what so the police shoot somebody, uh, we wanna see whether that causes some sort of social chaos. And we're, okay. our measurement of social chaos is how many people get murdered at some later date. Okay, so you're looking at if a police officer uses lethal force, what is the aftermath of that? Exactly. So it could be a struggle over a gun or uh, the, the person attacks the police officer with an ax. So when somebody you know, dies at a, an incident with a police officer. And what were some of your findings from, from all of that research? And again, that was from 2013 up until today. The data set that we constructed uh, 
was ran from 2013 through 2015. Okay. And what we had to do was uh, pair the data that uh, I've described from the Killed by Police website with other data from the FBI that tracks the level of murders in U.S. cities. So what we did was uh, we decided to look at the 100 largest U.S. cities over this three-year period. And what was critical was that we were able to get monthly data because we expected that this reaction that followed uh, police use of lethal force would be relatively short-lived. That is, you'd get a blip sometime after the police shoot somebody in terms of disorder and Mm -hmm. in relatively short order in in typical circumstances the the disorder would uh, uh, recede so we needed relatively frequent observations on our measure of disorder so we have monthly data on murders okay and now with that, I know that we're, we're going to bring to light your findings, but was there a, a problem and a solution that you were hoping to find? Because, I mean, it sounds like if we look at this, I don't think any police officer in a confrontation in the heat of the moment would be thinking, hey, what's going to be the aftermath three weeks from today as, you know, perhaps I'm fighting for my life or, or dealing with, a, you know, an emotionally charged incident that could end up in somebody dying. Well, uh, I, I guess I would have to concede your point if we were speaking about uh, some incident 10 years ago. I'm, I'm not as sure that that's true today, given the amount of uh, pressure and the police are under and the amount of public discussion of the issue. Okay. And uh, so, so ultimately... These have to be thinking about this, th- these disorder effects that follow. That doesn't mean they shouldn't defend themselves. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, I should... Uh, uh, give you the two basic reasons that we want to look at this. One of them we've essentially covered already. That is, we want to try to gauge the disorder that follows from police use of lethal force. That is, how counterproductive are these shootings, uh, if at all? And okay. as we, and it turns out uh, there's some evidence that, that uh, suggests that uh, they may not be uh, The second issue, though, is we want to try to understand what makes policing effective in in some areas uh, versus others. So so just to give you uh, a a, uh, a statistic that when I first looked at it, it was just shocking to me. I don't know whether this will shock you, but it it really shocked me. So if you rank the 100 largest cities in the U.S. based on the murder rate, so top to bottom, ranking them, the cities at the top differ from the cities at the bottom. Now, mind you, these are all cities with uh, substantial populations, more than 200,000 people, right? Okay. So we're not talking about tiny towns. So the, the 100 largest cities, top to bottom, the, the murder rate differs by a factor of 50. And for some of these cities, it's at, at the very top versus the very bottom. It's almost a factor of 100. So, so in places like uh, uh, St. Louis, Detroit, uh, Baltimore, and New Orleans, uh, 
the the murder rate is higher by a factor of 50 uh, compared to other large cities. Okay. And can you define the factor of 50 just for people who may not be it's familiar? It's 50 times larger. So you're rate. saying the murder rate, the murder rate at those top few thousand. cities, okay, could be 50 times higher than the cities that were at the bottom, you know, 95, 96, those Ex cities towards bottom. Exactly um, right, Brian. That is, so that's, that's an astronomical. Huge disparities. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely enormous. And you can't explain it just by reference to differences in income or uh, racial variables. So, uh, uh, the, the effort here is to try to understand what's, what's driving uh, these variations in murder rates or disorder uh, across cities. And, and if I had to say uh, it in one word, it's trust. That is, uh, it's this trust relationship between police and citizens that, that is an absolute prerequisite for effective policing. When the trust breaks down, uh, a variety of other uh, undesirable consequences follow, and I'll try to trace those out. And just to interrupt real quick, so to clarify, when you say that it's a factor of 50, 50 times greater, are you talking about just the, the overall murder rate, or are you talking about incidents with police officers? I'm speaking about the overall murder rate. There's also a huge amount of variation in the rate uh, that, that, that uh, police uh, shoot citizens across uh, 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 cities, but that variation is a bit smaller. And you feel that that overall murder rate has to do with trust? You said that that's what you were identifying? It, to, to my mind, there's no other way to explain it. Okay. And so and that, can you elaborate uh, on that? One, one of the big themes that uh, we're trying to tease out of uh, this is, is better information on, uh, on trust as a key determinant of disorder or effective policing. Okay, so that uh, uh, we wanna think about this as a two-sided problem. Okay, so that uh, if the police uh, don't trust citizens, uh, they can't get cooperation from citizens, or they feel like if they take action to suppress crime, maybe they'll uh, uh, put together a, a drug bust or do uh, some other discretionary activity aimed at suppressing crime. Uh, that subjects the police to risk, right? There, there'll be risk uh, that uh, uh, they'll upset somebody, there'll be a complaint. And if the local district attorney uh, is so inclined, there'll be a prosecution against the police. So, so many times under these circumstances, the rational response on the part of the police is to simply pull back and uh, only respond to uh, calls and undertake police activity that's absolutely required. So any discretionary policing, like uh, drug busts or, or uh, uh, prostitution stings or the like uh, is uh, curtailed or eliminated. Okay. And, and uh, there's evidence uh, compiled elsewhere that, that shows that uh, when you have these high profile incidents between uh, police and uh, citizens, 
like uh, the Ferguson incident, uh, the police will pull back and you get less okay. police. Interesting. On the other so hand, go ahead. You're, so if I understand correctly, your hypothesis, which it sounds, if I'm correct, like pretty unique in that you don't believe these Chicago's, Baltimore's, New Orleans areas like that have such high murder rates because of economic factors or poverty or other issues, but that more it's the interaction between the people who live there and the police force? Well, I don't want to deny that uh, poverty and, and some of these other factors uh, explain some of the variations in murder rates that we see across uh, the locations in the U.S. My, my argument is it can't be the whole story because you can't account for uh, the variations that we're seeing solely by reference to income or unemployment uh, or, uh, or race. Is that because you found some of those cities that were at the bottom of the list had a similar dynamic, but a totally different murder rate? Right. Uh, the, the, yeah, well, the, the data is analyzed uh, across uh, all the cities. So I didn't try to break it out uh, based on uh, the murder rate in the city. We, we're just analyzing the 100 largest cities to see if we can tease out these factors. Uh, okay. There's a number of uh, extensions to this data that we can speak about uh, uh, later, if you like. Okay. And so what happened, it sounds like that the, the police feel that they have to act in a certain way, either to be more aggressive or take a more lax approach to maybe smaller crimes because of how some of these uh, interactions might be construed or what the, the higher ups are telling them. Right. Right. In the event of one of these high profile shootings, the police are subject to more scrutiny. That greater mm -hmm. scrutiny may cause them to change their behavior in a way that uh, facilitates more crime. Okay. And so when there's been these high profile things, you're finding that they back off more than kind of turn up the heat. So, you know, so to say on, uh, on their population. Correct. And, and uh, I would say that uh, to finish the story about the two sided problem, uh, the citizens themselves, when they lose uh, trust in the police, first off, uh, won't call 911 with the same frequency. Uh, but they tend to then resort to uh, threats of violence uh, or actual violence to protect themselves, uh, their family, or their property, right? So that uh, you, uh, you have your running buddies and uh, your relationship with them is to back them up when they get in trouble and to exact retribution from people that have somehow trespassed against your running buddies. And uh, to the extent that uh, you don't follow through on that, then you're out of the group and you can't count on them to save you uh, when you need uh, protection of some sort. But uh, as you might imagine, when arrangements, private arrangements like this evolve, it, it, uh, it breeds more violence. Mm -hmm. and, and very often the idea is, I better shoot that guy before he shoots me. So more kind of taking it into their own hands type of approach? Exactly. Okay. 
And do you think that this has been going on, you know, for decades or at least what it appears to me is since the advent of a cell phone that can capture video and photo that these incidents now are front page news. And so were they happening behind the scenes forever or is, are these interactions that are so volatile? Is this something new that really has come about over the past 10 years? Well, I would say yes and no. Uh, uh, yes, the, the, uh, the cell phone cameras and uh, social media give these events wider exposure and, and probably change the dynamic. But uh, these events have always taken place, uh, or at least as far back as there's been policing, probably over the course of the 20th century. And the groups of people who were affected are relatively small in number. So uh, studies show that about uh, uh, 80% of the murders in your typical city occur in only about 5% of the area of the city. So that what you get are crime hotspots. And, and the okay. people who live in these crime hotspots uh, have ways of finding out what the police did. Uh, that are separate from social media. You, you might get uh, a little bit more of uh, a, a word of mouth interaction as opposed to uh, uh, internet communication. Okay. Uh, but uh, uh, I would contend that uh, this dynamic, at least to, to some extent, has been present. Uh, long before there was an internet, but uh, I, I would uh, concede that the internet probably uh, altered in some way the way the information was conveyed. Yep. Yeah, now it's uh, you can find pretty much anything on the internet, whether it's true or false. Uh, there's certainly going to be enough people to agree with it. And so now with all of, all of this goings-ons, obviously going back to the genesis of, of this paper and why that student brought it up to you, I uh, was hoping to speak about Black Lives Matter. So could you talk a little bit about what you found as far as implications for groups such as Black Lives Matter or now the huge, uh, you know, motion to try and defund the police? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, I, I can. Uh, let me step back and give you the, the, the main sure. results first. So okay. the main results that is over this uh, uh, full data set, uh, 2013 through 2015, and it's important to note that right in the middle of the data set, Ferguson occurs. So uh, uh, Michael Brown is uh, killed by the police uh, in Ferguson, Missouri uh, in August of 2014. Yep. And that's right in the center of my data that runs from January 2013 through December 2015. Okay. And what we find over the full data set is that uh, when the police shoot somebody, and, or uh, I should say more correctly, when the police use lethal force, that is, they take an action uh, and they kill somebody in, in the line of duty. Now, most of the time they're shot, but not always. Okay, so we've got all lethal force incidents. Uh, two months later, murders rise by about 2%. And it's important that we have this time uh, lag between the two items. 
that is uh, because you can, can certainly imagine that when the police shoot somebody, there's also more likely to be a murder at the spot. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. when, it, uh, when the uh, uh, consequence occurs two months later, it means that some sort of disorder occurred as the result of the police action. Okay, and two questions real quick to that. So you tracked a 2% increase. Is that nationwide murders or in that particular vicinity, in that city where? It's in that city. Okay, and is 2% as an economist, is that a meaningful increase or is that just, is that negligible, uh, an amount that small? Well, uh, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I would say even if it's negligible, we've got uh, evidence that the mechanism about trust is operating. Okay. Okay, So uh, it's it's true that uh, in your typical uh, month here, uh, you've only got about six murders. So 2% of six is a very, very small bump. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we've also got uh, almost a thousand incidents of uh, uh, the police uh, shooting somebody. Okay. And so 2% of a thousand, you've got 20 extra murders there. Okay. Okay. So you could definitely notice a, a slight uptick. And, and the other important uh, element of these results is that if we look at the period prior to Ferguson, and this is the most surprising thing to me when I went through the data, uh, prior to Ferguson, when the police uh, uh, killed somebody, two months later, the murder rate up, went up by four and a half percent. Okay. Anything After that you Ferguson, can point to for that? I'm sorry? I said anything that you could account for in that respect, or is maybe because it was so uh, kind of high profile of an incident? Well, here, here's uh, my story that if we look at, and, and this probably won't come as a surprise, given that uh, the result for the entire data set was 2%, prior to Ferguson, it's 4.5%. The effect disappears after Ferguson. So, so that uh, in general, when the police shoot somebody at, uh, after Ferguson, the murder rate falls slightly three months after the event on average. Okay. So what that suggests to me is that the police took action, at least collectively, we're, we're dealing with 93 uh, police departments, uh, collectively took some sort of action so as to increase trust. I can't say based on my data exactly what that was. So it, it could be that it was body cameras. It could be that they banned certain types of police practices like chokeholds. Uh, I have to do more digging to try to find out why the effect of police shootings on disorder is very different before Ferguson than it is after Ferguson. Hmm. That is interesting. That's definitely perhaps something to look further into. And, and so what it suggests is that uh, at least some of these protests that are happening now uh, may, uh, as, as uh, shocking as uh, it might seem to advocates for the police, and I suppose I consider myself to be one, 
that it, there might be some good that comes from it. Certainly. Yeah, I hope so. I think it, it, with a lot of these things, there could be some good consequences and then some negative unintended consequences. Correct. And maybe that can kind of lead back to what we wanted to discuss of right now with Black Lives Matter being, you know, so noticeable and all these chants for defund the police. You know, what what is to come of that? Like, is that, can you talk a little bit of, of what you anticipate that leading to? Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, uh, to the extent that either of these movements undermine the, the trust between police and citizens, uh, crime will rise. And I think that's what we're seeing in a lot of major cities in the last uh, month, month and a half. Uh, that is, uh, these efforts to defund the police haven't as yet reduced the number of police on the street. And in fact, many uh, cities have increased the number of police. Interesting. So, so to the extent that crime is surging, it's uh, consistent with the story, at least in my view, that I'm trying to tell about the importance of trust between police and citizens in suppressing crime. When the trust disappears, crime surges because people try to protect their life and limb uh, using violence and threats of violence. And the police, uh, fearing more scrutiny, uh, pull back and, and undertake fewer discretionary uh, anti-crime activities. So I think that's what we're seeing on the streets. And that's one of the bad things, I would argue, that's uh, uh, following from uh, the so-called defund the police movement. Because uh, at least as near as I can tell, none of the, the, uh, the budget changes have affected uh, police on the street just yet. So it's got to be something about sentiment that's driving the crime up. Yep. And, and I believe that uh, uh, that's the essential dynamic that I captured in my earlier data set. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it just seems like such a crazy time where you, you see these videos every night where they got a protest going on and then people are smashing through windows, stealing stuff, and there's police officers standing there right in the street that, that seem right. like they're emasculated, like they, they're just, you know, watching this stuff go on that any other time you think that these guys would be thrown in jail for who knows how long. And now it, it seems like they can't do anything. Yeah. And if I could uh, uh, make an analogy that I, I hope a financial planner will love <laughs> is that, that this confidence relationship is uh, very similar to the uh, relationship that the federal reserve has with investors. Okay. With regard to interest rate pronouncements, to the extent that people trust the Fed to keep interest rates low for a long time, that's going to have a much larger impact on, on borrowing activity than when they don't trust the Fed. That's a good point. I like the analogy. And, and I think a lot of these things, you know, not, not to cut you off, become so politicized. And I've never seen the Fed under such scrutiny too, where you know it's like the, the administration and the Fed will go back and forth uh, saying what should or shouldn't be done. Um, and yeah, I think yeah. that does have an effect on the markets and, and what investors are planning for their future. This Fed administration battle, uh, you'd have to go back to the 1970s to find uh, uh, similar incidents. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, it's a shame. No, that's a, that's a very interesting way of looking at it. 
And so in going back to, to Black Lives Matter, defund the police, it, it, what I think the fear that, that I would have, and I think a lot of people have, is it seems like what started as Black Lives Matter, you know, we're, we're trying to do good and, and protect black lives, obviously, has become almost like the antithesis to support police. And so one of the things I, I was just watching the other day on the news is like with the NFL, you know, for so long, it seemed like the NFL, you'd watch any football game. They were supporting the military all the way through from the kickoff to the end of the game. And there was constantly a show of support for blue. And, and there was talk everywhere. And there was, you know, the thin blue line and those flags seen everywhere. <laughs> and now all of a sudden, it seems like, you know, the military, we don't need to, to worry about. But when we talk about policing, it seems like there's no way they can even bring it up that they're possibly supporting that right now. And you're seeing the NBA, the MLB, and the NFL all taking initiatives to promote Black Lives Matter in a very, very big way. Yeah, and it has been a very dramatic shift. Uh, it's huge. It's huge. And so it seems like they have drawn a line in the sand and they've taken a side in, in that debate. With, without question. And they have such a, a, a way to censor their athletes and, you know, who have such a huge platform as far as what they can say or do. Um, so what's to come of that? Because when you talk about that, this all comes back to trust between the community and the police force. And now we're drawing a divide right there. And, and I don't want to say that they're almost making the blue the enemy, but it, a lot of people will interpret it that way. Yeah, uh, it's hard to know what your average person uh, uh, understands with regard to, to Black Lives Matter. If you go to the website for the organization, they, they take some very controversial uh, uh, political positions that uh, I highly doubt your average American agrees with. And, and so I, I have to wonder whether you've got uh, a... Uh, an effect that follows from a shocking uh, video of uh, the uh, the Minneapolis incident with uh, George Floyd and the primary, I guess, uh, uh, political organization uh, set up to prevent such actions, realizing a huge benefit from just the highly emotional content of that that video and over time uh, perhaps the uh, the policies espoused by black lives matter will uh, receive a bit more scrutiny and we're starting to see some uh, pushback that is uh, i've seen a couple of polls recently that uh, show that uh, your average inner city resident does not want to see cuts in the police budget yeah, I think defunding the police would affect a crime-ridden city more than anywhere else. I, uh, I think that's exactly right. Take away that right. law and order. It, exactly right. And the people who suffer most uh, from uh, disorder in the, uh, in the cities are poor people, primarily uh, minorities. Uh, so uh, I think one of the, the, the key facts that's been lost in all of this discussion with regard to policing is that uh, black men are seven times more likely to be murdered than white men. 
young black men are 14 times more likely to be murdered than young white men. And most murders are within racial groups. So 90% of black victims have black assailants. Exactly. I mean, I just saw on the news a uh, statistic. It was from the FBI in 2018 that said 2,925 African-Americans were murdered and 2,600 of those were by fellow African-Americans. So uh, when the police pull back from these locations, uh, uh, black men suffer dramatically. That's what I struggle with is why are they not understanding that if, you know, if, if, if we're piecing together the puzzle and we say, okay, Black Lives Matter right now has the microphone and they're saying defund the police. But then if we look at the statistics, it, 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 it doesn't seem like it takes a lot of, you know, thinking to kind of draw the connection here. I don't understand uh, how it still has such a strong footing. Yeah, it's, it's hard to know. Uh, you have uh, a, a large number of voices speaking uh, for Black Lives Matter, and it's hard to draw inferences about exactly what their mm, motives might be separate from the ones that are posted on their website. But I found it uh, interesting that uh, the city that's uh, had the longest protests in the wake of this uh, George Floyd murder has been one of the whitest cities in the country, (laughs) Portland. Portland, Portland, Oregon uh, has only about 6% uh, black residents. Uh, That's incredible. uh, They've got heavy uh, levels of uh, land use regulation. It's very hard to build anything in Portland. And the housing prices are very high. Uh, And uh, you have to wonder uh, what uh, might be causing Portland, as opposed to, say, St. Louis, uh, to have uh, much more protest activity. I I think that there's probably some interesting propositions that that you could tease out of a decent data set uh, uh, on that question. But uh, that remains to be done. So what I'm doing now is only speculating. Fair enough. And that's a very uh, eye-opening finding. Um, Some of it just doesn't quite seem to make sense. And so, you know, you've done a lot of study on the the topic. What are some of the more important uh, unanswered questions that were raised. And I guess to, to round things out on the subject, are there solutions here? I know we can find a lot of things that will open our eyes. Um, some people want to ignore them and ignore the truth, but what are some of the solutions to the questions that are coming from this? Yeah, well, uh, the first solution is that uh, if uh, crime uh, in cities is driven by this trust relationship. You want to make sure that in the wake of protests, every action on both sides is uh, taken with an eye towards preserving that trust relationship. That is, uh, the police shouldn't ever be rejecting out of hand uh, uh, any reform proposals. 
They should be thinking about uh, these complaints and trying uh, to respond to them in the most constructive way. Because the last thing you want to do if you're running a police department is come off as high-handed. Mm-hmm. And uh, the same thing is true with uh, the communities. Don't tear down the police. Uh, it, it's going to create even more problems to the extent that the police feel that they're under fire. Uh, sure. So if your average officer on the street uh, thinks that uh, the, the residents that he's responsible for policing hate him, uh, you're not going to get good outcomes. So, so uh, we want to keep an eye on that. If, that. if that was the one thing I could say, that would be the main uh, uh, implication of this. And it's not unique to me. A couple of other people have made this point recently. Sure. Uh, other unanswered questions are, well, how much of this shift that we saw after Ferguson was the result of things like body cameras or changes in practices or outreach? And, and uh, I don't know the answer to that. I, and I'd like to, to try to, in the future, uh, dig up some data to get uh, an answer to those questions. That is, what caused that shift pre-Ferguson versus post-Ferguson? And just to, again, reiterate what I said was that uh, uh, prior to Ferguson, uh, when the police killed somebody, the murder rate up, went up by about 4.5%. Uh, two months after the uh, uh, the police uh, uh, used lethal force, uh, after Ferguson, uh, when the police uh, uh, killed somebody, the murder rate went down about three percent. Three months following the incident, but the other thing is is that uh, prior to Ferguson, there was no racial. It didn't matter whether the police uh, uh, shot a black man or a white man. After Ferguson, uh, if the police shot somebody who was white, the crime rate or the the murder rate uh, fell three months uh, uh, after the event, whereas if they shot somebody who was black, it rose Hmm. about 2%. So you got this racial difference that you didn't have after Ferguson, even though in the aggregate, the effect of the police shooting on subsequent murders was lower after Ferguson. I don't know. That's a little bit confusing. Was that? Uh, it's a, a little bit, but, but to, to summarize that, so it sounds like post Ferguson, if I understood what you just said correctly, that the, uh, if, if the police had used lethal force on a, a black individual, the murder rate had gone up. Whereas if it was on a white individual, the murder rate had actually gone down. Is that what you said? Yes, yes. And, and the other interesting fact here is the number of incidents isn't changing over time. Yeah. So what that suggests is, is the interpretation or the meaning of those incidents uh, changes uh, post-Ferguson, because the actual number is unaffected. That's that's interesting, and I'd be curious to see you know some of that data now, like post George Floyd, where it's this is something that we've never seen before. Yeah, well, the 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 FBI that compiles the data is usually about a year or two behind in releasing the month to month uh, uh, murder levels, but you might be able to find uh, the uh, uh, the data on individual city websites. Gotcha. Now. Got it. 
anything else that's worth noting uh, in respect to a lot of that research on police and use of lethal force? And uh, I guess a definitely a timely topic, but a very sensitive one that we're all dealing with right now. I think when you combine it with a worldwide pandemic, it's a pressure cooker that's, that's getting a little bit out of hand. Yeah, you know, that's a point that we haven't spoken about at all. Uh, how much of the current unrest is being fueled by uh, the high level of unemployment uh, coupled with the, uh, the government checks that are coming in? Uh, Why do the government checks have anything to do with that? What? Well, well, that, that uh, people have a little bit of money to do things. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not as, as pressed for survival, but they've got lots of time on their hands. Sure. Uh, and this is all speculation on my part, so I, I don't know for sure. But, but uh, I'm just picking up on your thought and uh, arguing that I think that there's something to it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could just notice, by the way, uh, the quarantine, you know, before George Floyd was such a serious action that... You know, it, it was insane to see the streets of populated cities that were just empty. And then as soon as that happened, it's like, what quarantine? And before you know it, like hundreds of thousands of people are congregating all over the country. Um, so it was very interesting to see the outlooks on some of these change so quickly. True enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure, I know we talked quite a bit there, but if you wanted to touch on some of your more recent research, I know you said it was on the sanctuary cities that you were looking into those. I know for lack of a better segue, is there any uh, correlation between the two subjects or at least anything that you want to share on some of that research that you think, uh, you know, the listeners should know about? Uh, wow. Uh, that, uh, it's a longer story and I have to make a bunch of, uh, uh subtle, uh, distinctions, uh, to differentiate what people uh, uh, typically understood uh, about these sanctuary cities and uh, what I'm finding in my data. But I'll, I'll uh, make an attempt and uh, hope for the best, right? So that uh, the, the uh, relatively small number of papers that try to understand the, uh, the determinants of these sanctuary cities uh, focus on ideology. That is uh, the primary dividing line between a sanctuary location and a non-sanctuary location is a degree of openness that characterizes these uh, sanctuary locations versus a, a uh, adherence to tradition and uh, a, uh, a certain level of uh, uh, restrictionism, if you will. So this is the way that people have uh, uh, typically analyzed uh, this, uh, this issue. Uh, I'm taking a slightly different angle uh, on the, the uh, issue and arguing that uh, uh, land use issues are important in this dynamic. And uh, ideology is typically captured in these analyses using things like, well, the share of the vote that went to Obama in 2012. My argument is that uh, uh, ideology is, is multifaceted. And uh, in fact, the liberal cities, and, and 
think San Francisco here, mm -hmm. are much more heavily regulated. That is, they've got high levels of uh, land use regulation. It's very, very, very difficult to build something in San Francisco. It's relatively easy to build something in Houston, for instance. Okay. So there, there, you can set up a sort of a contrast between those two cities as prototypes uh, for uh, uh, heavy land use regulation versus light land use regulation. Uh, the other uh, important element here is that uh, cities that have lots of land use regulation also have a lot of labor market regulation. And that might be uh, licensing things like uh, uh, plumbers. Mm -hmm. It might be uh, minimum wage regulation or uh, uh, a set of other uh, items uh, related to uh, occupational classifications. Uh, okay. Unions are also important uh, elements in this. So, so as to, it to recap what you're saying, it sounds like you said liberal cities, that it's harder to build in, harder to, to find or get a job because of all these extra regulations. Those are more of the sanctuary cities. Is that exactly right? Exactly. That is the sanctuary cities have much higher levels of regulation. Why is that? That doesn't, that almost sounds like a contradiction. It, it, uh, it does. Uh, I, I think that uh, in general, uh, uh, liberals have much less faith in markets as a way to organize economic activity. That is, they see uh, individual decisions as having uh, much more in the way of spillover effects, or the, the technical term that I'm sure you're familiar with, externalities sure. are greater. Uh, so that uh, I can't let you pave 40% of that lot. It's going to cause problems for me uh, the next time it rains. Or uh, if you build that development, it's uh, going to cause traffic, which it increases my uh, commute to work. So that uh, uh, people uh, who have much more of a liberal orientation tend to see these effects as much more important. And uh, they need or they believe that government should be involved in uh, preventing the unintended consequences of market decisions by, by regulating. In, in that, I can understand that viewpoint, you know, for people that have that, that kind of liberal viewpoint. But it, what seems weird is they say, like, let's say San Francisco, they want to get over regulation where they can have quite a bit of control on what's going on there. But then you would think a sanctuary city is like the ultimate in deregulation, where it, it, I, it, I still don't totally understand how they exist. It seems like it's against the law, but I, I don't know. Maybe I don't have a firm understanding on the, the, the sanctuary cities, but. Uh, wouldn't you qualify that as something that's completely deregulated? Well, uh, they want to, to prevent federal interference in uh, decisions about um, immigration law in their, their, uh, their cities. That is, uh, they want to refuse to enforce the federal immigration law. They don't want to aid the federal government in enforcing uh, 
immigration law. And I can see how you're making the point that uh, uh, isn't that uh, contrary to high levels of regulation. And, and I concede your point, but uh, I, I see it in the data. So, so that uh, I would concede that uh, perhaps there's a, a inconsistency in their behavior, but it's there nevertheless. Got that it. is the cities that have these, uh, who have made these sanctuary declarations, who have the sanctuary policies in place, are also cities that have uh, higher levels of uh, regulation of uh, labor markets and land use. And here's the kicker. That is that higher level of uh, land use uh, regulation and labor market regulation makes it more expensive to live in those cities. And those cities are experiencing decreases in the percentage of the population that's non-citizens. That makes sense. So the non-citizen population as a percentage of the total is declining in the liberal cities with the sanctuary declarations, but not declining in the locations that uh, have not made de uh, sanctuary declarations. Wow, it's, uh, <laughs> it's definitely a weird time. You yeah. Know, and and, and I, I, I see the data, it doesn't necessarily make sense, but I guess what I would say is, is there like a hypothesis to this? And I think that's what a lot of people maybe sometimes I don't want to say get annoyed by, but don't understand about economics is like, okay, you brought up a really great point that we didn't see that in liberal cities that are overregulated, they become sanctuary, you know, cities or have that element. And then citizens there that would work otherwise are moving out and non-citizens are living there naturally because it's a sanctuary city. So it, it's an interesting finding, but is there, I guess, a point to it or is there, there's something that, um, you know, from a political standpoint, one would say, hey, that's good, or hey, that's bad, or should we do something about it? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, again, this is a, a long and confusing issue. I'll, I'll try to <laughs> do my best to... Uh, I'm sorry to drag you into it. <laughs> uh, to to uh, concisely express uh, what I think is going on. Uh, so, so uh, what I think is going on is that... Uh, Political parties are groups of people who want to control the government. This is a, a, a long-running model in political science. And to the extent that uh, you're a typical resident uh, that knows that uh, this regulation is keeping your house price high and protecting your livelihood, you, you want to keep that regulation in place because you're a beneficiary. You're an insider. Okay, but but uh, that's not a winning political coalition. So you need another position to get enough votes to prevail in the next election, and so that uh, you adopt these positions like sanctuary as a way to build a winning po political coalition and uh, uh, retain uh, power and uh, keep those regulations. Uh, in place, because as it turns out, uh, the sanctuary regulations, uh, once they're they're put in place, or the sanctuary policies, I should say, once they're put in place, uh, don't in any way uh, decrease the 
outflow of non-citizens from these sanctuary locations. That is, they're completely ineffective and they're apparently, at least judging by uh, migration decisions, not valued at all uh, by non-citizens, which is a category that includes undocumented immigrants. But it would take me another hour to sort of lay out the data that I've got and uh, what sort of analyses I've done to support this. And the the paper is, I hope, uh, just uh, uh, a couple of months away from publication. It's it's under revision at a journal. Okay. Yeah, I look forward to reading that. I will send it to you as soon as I have a final version. Yeah, please do. Yeah, I'd love to look at that. So these have been two, you know, very uh, emotionally charged, politically charged, you could kind of pick the adjective here, uh, topics mm-hmm. on policing and sanctuary cities. They're certainly um, talked about constantly on the news right now, but I appreciate you sharing, you know, your findings and some of this data here. And hopefully more and more people can understand the data and make informed decisions. Um, with respect to the sanctuary cities, like I, I like that you mentioned that there's beneficiaries to both sides of these equations. And so what might seem like dirty politics to one person might seem like something that's protecting my job or protecting my way of life to another person. Mm-hmm. So I get that. But I think on the policing side, uh, based on a, a lot of the data that you shared, it, it, the fear is I think that there may be some unintended consequences uh, to what sound like good motives or good messages. And I think that's something that people really have to to understand, you know, that that you had shared there. You know, defund the police is something that could strip law and order from the exact cities that are most plagued by problems that need police. Um, So that's, I don't know if we have solutions here, but hopefully other people can look at all the data you shared and maybe come up with some solutions. Yeah, well, I'm not the only person working on these topics, so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there'll be some progress. Uh, but uh, uh, to the extent that uh, I'm able to get my story out there, I'm happy. Yeah, definitely. And I, just to maybe close, do you feel like the, the pendulum swings? Because it, it, from my standpoint, it seems like Black Lives Matter going back to policing has become so present especially in sports, which has such a grip on America. And you're going to see, you know, opening day now today for baseball that every single pitcher's mound will have BLM, you know, etched into it. Uh, and, and it's it's everywhere. And a lot of people now, unfortunately, are taking that as an anti-blue uh, movement. And you wonder if it'll go too far. And then those same people that embraced it, you know, such as the NBA or the NFL and so on, uh, could then shun it as they continue just to kind of move with whatever uh, they think is going to put them in a positive light or get the most eyeballs on their their shows or their events. Um, do you feel like there is that pendulum effect over time? You know, almost certainly. Uh, that is, uh, actors on both sides uh, are uh, trying to put in place policies uh, that uh, they prefer or that uh, that benefit their group. And uh, the public understanding of these issues will evolve over time. Uh, I think that uh, the, the surge in crime that's occurred since uh, the George Floyd uh, uh, murder 
is uh, coloring uh, the uh, the debate over uh, uh, the police reforms, and I hope uh, what's a productive way. That is, uh, people are recognizing that uh, uh, shutting down police departments entirely is very dangerous, and it's uh, uh, most dangerous uh, to uh, poor inner city residents. So I'm I'm hoping that uh, uh, things will move in a productive direction, but of course I don't want to offer any guarantees. Yeah, yeah we never can. No guarantees in economics. So thank you so much for being on the show. And do you have any uh, closing remarks or anything that you'd like to share with our listeners before we sign off today? Uh, No other than to thank you for inviting me onto the show. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak about uh, uh, these research projects. And and, uh, I wish you the best of luck. Uh, We TCNJ people have to stick together. (laughs) That's right. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. And today we've been joined by Dr. Donald Vandegrift, a professor at the College of New Jersey. And thanks so much for being on the show and sharing so much insight for us. And we look forward to seeing everybody next week. Take care. The Kaderna Podcast is for informational purposes only. Individual situations may vary, and the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guardian and its subsidiaries do not provide tax, legal, social security, student loan, mortgage, or real estate advice. Listeners should contact their own tax, accounting, or legal advisors, or the social security department in this matter. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, Pass, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003. Securities, product services, and advisory services are offered through Pass, a registered broker-dealer and investment advisor. Nine Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. Pass is an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Caderna Financial Team and International Planning Alliance, LLC, are not affiliates or subsidiaries of Pass or Guardian. Caderna Financial Team is a division of International Planning Alliance, LLC, a general agency of Guardian. Pass is a member of FINRA, SIPC. California Insurance License Number, OK04194. Content of the Caderna Podcast is copyright of Brian M. Caderna, all rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the content in any form is prohibited without prior permission from the Caderna Podcast. The views and opinions expressed herein may not be those of Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, or any of its subsidiaries or affiliates. Guardian does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of of the information or opinions presented herein. Any third-party materials referenced cannot be endorsed or verified by Guardian and are used as the opinion of the author. Guardian, its subsidiaries or affiliates do not provide or issue or advise for mortgages. This material contains the current opinions of the author, but not necessarily those of Guardian or its subsidiaries, and such opinions are subject to change without notice.